You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spiris Yvette, and I'm here with Myra Meskin and Ben Gurin. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. How's your how's the little Eleanor in your home? She's great. She is working on a lot of new words every day. That's her that's her newest gambit, is she's got a new word every day. <laughs> She's really into itsy bitsy spider and watching videos of herself as a baby. Yeah, which, constantly uh, asking for the baby. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like what Eleanor Shellstrop. It's similar. <laughs> okay, are you teaching her how to curse in like a good place style? How to say like birch? Mm-hmm. Or We're whatever. still working on please and thank you. Yeah. So. <laughs> In the episode where, oh, this is terrible to say, where Eleanor is trying to figure out how to make, snap Michael out of his uh, screen face, yeah. you know, uh-huh. what, like, <laughs> what can I get you to eat, baby, babies? Yeah. Since that, this is your first time back and it's the next season, I'll ask you if you have any new thought as to which of the main characters you feel like you most are. Well, based on this episode, I definitely had a, a stronger affinity for Janet. Janet was your pick last time. I think, but in that process and awareness of trying to become more human, I thought was very admirable and would, it's a nice example. Yeah. I don't know if I have those that I'm anyone I'm feeling particularly drawn to right now, <laughs> except maybe uh, Chidi's entrance into this episode with all the needles. <laughs> I'm just feeling like, you know, life comes up, things happen not expecting them. <laughs> Hopefully you have a friend who doesn't brush it off quite the way that Michael does, but <laughs> you just got to roll with it. <laughs> I say he delivered those lines with the needles, you know, walk, walk it off or whatever. And uh-huh. the yeah. needles in my feet in exact, yeah. and just, just a little notch down from your normal cheaty scream. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was good. How about any, any of them you're feeling you would like to be just a little bit more? Let's see here. I'm always striving to be Jason, I think. Just living in the moment. Oh, man, we got robbed. Yeah. <laughs> that was from this episode. Yeah. These Just guys are good. Constant wonder. Right, right. His his response in that moment of we got robbed is like an appreciation for the the expertise and professionalism of the <laughs> Oh, I didn't think about that. That's nice. It's like, I, I wish I could approach problems that way. Uh, <laughs> and you. Let's see here. Maybe Michael a little bit in this episode of he, you know, really discovers that friendship is what is making him more human. And uh, thanks to consult Eleanor saying, wow, this sounds, uh, I think we need an expert. I think we need an expert in being a human being. So that, that, that personal growth, but also that reliance on, um, you know, reliance on your friends to help you out. Mm. And I say admirable name. Remembering to call on them. Remembering to call. Yeah. 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 So we're here to talk about Chapter 20, Janet and Michael. When do you want to give us the summary before we start talking about it? Sure. You want to do it or you want me to do it? You can do it. (laughs) Michael runs diagnostics on Janet to see why she is glitching. After she pulls the manual out of her nostrils, Michael performs tests such as taking her temperature, 99.7 trillion degrees, which I think he says is a little high, high. but no big (laughs) And asking her to make what the random object generator generates. 
Eventually, they determine that Janet's glitch relates to her lying about being happy about Jason and Tahani's relationship. Michael flashes back to the first lie he ever told Janet and explains to Janet how she had married Jason in an earlier iteration, whose memory she had apparently suppressed. Janet proposes that the solution to save the neighborhood is not to reboot her, but to marbleize her permanently and get another Janet. But Michael refuses because friends. Michael sends Janet to Eleanor for advice, and one of her suggestions is to find a rebound guy. So Janet creates one, Derek. This is such a great episode. <laughs> Anything you particularly loved and laughed at? One of my favorite jokes was pretty subtle, but Vicky trying to reset Janet and doing, I think, I'm pretty sure it was a reference to the Konami code. It's like a famous video game cheat code from back in the <laughs> 80s that kind of recurs over iterations. Uh... I think it's like... Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, off the top of my head. But showing that like (laughs) Vicky's not interested in hard work. She's like, oh, right. Janet's got a problem. I bet you I can put a cheat code in to make her work. And it's like a very, it's a nice, it's a nice little video game reference. But I think it's also a nice reference to Vicky's character of not being interested in hard work. And her solution to a problem is like, I bet you I could cheat. Whereas Michael's like really trying to have a, um, really trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with Janet because he cares about her. Mm. I have used more than more than a few paper clips to reboot uh, modems and uh, <laughs> routers and other kinds of things. And uh, and I'm currently attempting, you talk about the 80s and 90s, I'm trying to resurrect an old uh, Macintosh PowerBook computer and it is uh, very clear where to put the paper clip and nothing is happening. <laughs> I never thought about that being why they keep referencing, yeah, you reset uh, you reset Jan with a paperclip. That's got to be it. Yeah, I never thought of that either. Yeah. That's funny. Well, so I was trying to figure out if there's a relationship between that, you know, when when she tells him to go pick up a paperclip, right? He's got this bowl full of paperclips because it's one of his favorite human artifacts or something. He like, you know, he collects all the random human stuff and he loves paperclips. Mm. But I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Of like, I get. I mean, maybe that that's the reference of Janet becoming more human, and so the the paperclip is the is the physical representation of that in some way. Or she's that's the link between her humanness and her existence as a piece of technology. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I, I'm having two associations because on the one hand, the paperclip is so you know low tech. Yeah, and it's not even a stapler, you know, it's a paperclip. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet it's so necessary to do all these uh, reset kind of things. And then when I, when I, I have to say, I went to sort of a dark place when I saw this pile of paperclips, because I'm just thinking about the paperclip project with the, the, the six. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have to link that. And, but yeah, for some reason that struck me in a way, maybe I just hadn't seen them represent a pile of paperclips before. It, it might also be similar to like, Janet's identity stuff going on right now because I think she she conceives of herself when she's thinking of herself as a Janet like oh I'm a tool right I'm a paperclip I'm just like something that's functional within the world and then this is her becoming human and that she's not more similar to the paperclip that she's more similar to one of the one of the, the humans as it were. Well, I mean, the funny thing about the way we're talking about paperclips I don't know if you wanted to go down this rabbit hole of paperclips. <laughs> What's but- the nature of paperclips? <laughs> Well, it's interesting because we you mentioned the thing like it's not it's not even a stapler, right? Yeah. Of like the the paperclip, like how many of us? 
we don't have a ton of paper clips in our house, but the paper clips we have, I use them not as paper clips. I use them to reboot technology or, you know, reopen the super glue or something that like the, t- the top got rusted <laughs> over, you know, mm. that kind of stuff. Like it has so many uses. That's not how it was originally intended to be used. And that's a little bit like the, <gasps> the trope of Janet. Here. Oh, Ooh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Right, that she's 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 melf. She's not functioning in the way that that she was meant to be functioning. In. Hi guys, I'm broken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But she really isn't broken. She's gaining more. She's gaining more utility. She's gaining more ways mm-hmm. of being a Janet as she's gaining more ways of being as she's becoming more human. Mm-hmm. Which should terrify me. I'm I'm not into this kind of AI. This thing where like it's so great that the that the other beings are adapting to us and <laughs> approximating us or outwitting us. That that frightens me. On the other hand, she is so childlike. Like when I think when Michael is starting to try to like let's retrace our steps and figure out why it got this way, and she says, mm-hmm. "Well, I did." Then I came in here. Then you looked annoyed at me like that. <laughs> Which sounds this is what this is what your toddler Eleanor is going to sound like. With there you go. <laughs> short period of time and she has these very simple the way that a child would just sort of talk matter of fact Mm -hmm. with and in uh and not realize the significance of what they're saying really and well yeah uh, and like the the quote that ben just said right where she like tahani and jason walk in and they're asking what's going on and she says hi guys i'm broken it is a very childlike thing to say in the sense of saying something that to an adult would read as very heavy and not something Mm. that you would blurt out to the newest person who walked in the room, but something that like you would sort of confess in private, maybe Uh to like a close friend. Kids are always revealing things that their parents say in private or something like that. that They're not supposed to say. Right. And she just like has no awareness of that. But I kind of love that. That's that that's something she's like willing to say. And wouldn't it be great if like more of us could function without that filter some of, some of the time, not all <laughs> the time, but certainly, certainly with regard to admitting our brokenness, that would be a, that would be a nice thing. It's also making me think maybe her, even her nonchalantness about death, it, like when she, you know, the, mm. come on, Michael, kill me. And like that, I like me, the, kill I, me. Yeah. Kill me. <laughs> I, I remember being like a kid in older elementary age where I recognized how often during playing games of like, bang, you're dead, or I killed you, or like that just started to bother me as, uh, oh, huh, where like kids say that very nonchalantly. Maybe it's a video game thing of the like, oh, yeah, when you die, that's not like the end, or I don't really have any conception of what that is. And maybe Janet also, her nonchalantness around death is also part of those childlike qualities Mm -hmm. of, yeah, well, it's not that big a deal, Mm -hmm. because you don't really understand. I'll tell you this, and maybe I'll edit it out. (laughs) <laughs> but when my when my son was three, he was just new in preschool. And until he went to preschool, we had kept him in a very carefully designed uh, life. Mm-hmm. He didn't watch regular TV, only the videos that we watched. And, and we were very careful, I think, about the things we said. And I was walking home one day from the preschool with him, and there was a bird on the ground next to a, an office that had was either dead or shocked or something. And just out of my mouth fell at the words, oh, I guess, you know, I guess that bird is dead. And immediately I, I was like, why did I say that? And like within a second, my son, who was not very, was not really talkative guys like, oh, it's dead. I wonder how it became dead. I wonder what happened to it. I wonder what it felt like when it hit the window. And then, and he just went off for like in this thing for like five wow. minutes. I'm like, whoa, that was in there. And- mm. Don't edit that out. That's basically like the origin story of the Buddha too. Like having a sheltered life and then encountering death for the first time. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll have to tell them that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> On, on the other hand, I was noticing about Janda, they did such a really nice job of directing her moves because she, she really had the, she's got the high thumbs up thing. Mm-hmm. And then when, when Michael is trying to tell her something new in both in the flashback at the architect's office and I think the initial couple of things, she has this thing where she just kind of leans in and looks, mm. you know, curiously. But when when he got to the part there where he was really explaining, walking her through what happened, how they got to this place, and then she like... Her face like kind of droops and she does that, oh, nuts and sits down. Uh-huh. Just that's so, so subtle the way that Darcy Carden, as always, the great, the great Darcy Carden uh, acts out the, yeah. the character there. I was trying to come up with a drosh of what the significance of the, the two times that she sits down in the course of the conversation, mm. like that she's normally standing and then she oh. sits when she has this like epiphany. I don't know if that's another human oh, thing or not. I couldn't. Yeah. Oh. Because yeah. she doesn't need to sit. She doesn't need to sit, but she like does. So, I mean, maybe that's like a friend thing of mm-hmm. like, you know, when you're relating to another person. All right. Michael's sitting both times mm-hmm. too. Isn't he? Yeah. That's right. She doesn't really, sitting is not her mode, really. She's yeah. she's to stand at the ready, really. He <laughs> yeah. he, he as we would say. We realize. Yeah. <laughs> But then I was going in another direction. We just said, Josh, somehow I thought about when Michael in the flashback is, is showing Sean why he can't just have a bad Janet interpret and 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 it's talking about the rocky road. It has whatever chocolate marshmallows and your mm-hmm. dad's salty nuts. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't think about this just in, and then dissolves in that tremendously great CGI. Mm-hmm. And But then Janet's this Janet's reaction to this realization is to say, nuts which is yeah oh interesting uh, yeah huh. i don't know maybe that just happened you know yeah. or just like what's the venn diagram of the relationship like what what characteristics do the good and bad janets share Ooh. that make them like a unique i'm mm-hmm. thinking of them oh I, I hate when rabbis do this but it's somewhere in the Talmud. <laughs> it's somewhere in the Talmud where they're debating of like what it must between, be in the Talmud. yeah what's the difference between a human being an animal a demon and an uh-huh. angel and they're like oh well it's a the human beings are like a, a composite animal demon angel situation and so like what's that venn diagram of the things that make janet's a unique category of being mm-hmm. are a, com- a like a combination of human characteristics and non-human characteristics they apparently they like exclaiming nuts i don't know and they can't lie and they can't lie. Neither of them. Neither of them can lie. Right. I think that's what we were talking about. Sort of like one of the, one of the themes of the the episode is around lying. And you know, I this it's certainly been a theme within the show overall. Lying it comes up a lot because Chidi loves Kant so much, and Kant has sort of a very black and white view of lying and the ethics of lying. But it's sort of one of those funny things that that good Janet and bad Janet share is that in their in their essence in their original form they're not supposed to lie even bad janet she tries to lie and she basically decomposes she just melts into herself you know that it's like you know janet lying in this episode is you know when she's when she's functioning outside of the way she's typically supposed to function to the extent that it actually like destabilizes their reality so it's sort of i guess i never would have thought that like bad janet and good janet sort of one of the things they would share would be that they can't lie. Right. You would, bad Janet is just mean. It doesn't have that signature peppiness and thumbs up attitude. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that 
what does it mean that like an essential characteristic of being human is the ability to lie? Mm-hmm. Mm. That is interesting because I, I think this, unlike the lying episode back in season one where Chidi agonizes of whether he should mm-hmm. uh, lie, if it's ethical to lie, there's kind of an acceptance here about lying as a thing. And the fact that, as you're saying, bad Janet can't do it and, and our Janet can't do it either. And Michael is attempting to help her, help them understand what is it like to be affected by lying in this way, which is a whole which is a whole other level. I think it's a really interesting layer you're pointing out. The Talmud thing that you remembered, the other Talmud thing you remembered of like lying, lying being human. The oh from the, about the bride. Yeah, there's the there's a debate, one of one of the many debates between the Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, two Talmudic schools. And this one's in 16b. It's about how should one dance before the bride and what sh- what should you say to a bride on her wedding day? And you know, Beit Hillel is very adamant that you should always tell the bride that she's beautiful and graceful. And Beit Shammai is like, well, you shouldn't shouldn't lie. You should just describe her the way that she is. So, you know, try to find some quality that you can praise in her. And that's what you should tell her on your wedding, on her wedding day. And, you know, like, like most of the debates <laughs> between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, Beit Hillel has the last word to sort of say on someone's wedding day, like they are beautiful, like a bride is beautiful, like period, you know, kind of thing. And in terms of lying and the role of lying in sort of maintaining a relationship with another person. And Janet, Janet experiments that with that when he asked her to tell another lie and she says, I love your outfit. <laughs> a, a giant sub falls from the ceiling. A giant sandwich. <laughs> I was trying to figure out why it was a sub. <laughs> oh, did you come up with anything? No, I certainly did not. <laughs> The random object generator, I think, was a great explanation of why Janet stuff or the there's no relationship between what's going on in the world and the things that Janet can create. The spinning the wheel of, you know, like a ostrich steak impaled on a pencil says, Lordy, Lordy, I'm over 40. That just like it doesn't have anything to do with anything. But I, I imagine in the writer's room, that would have been fun to come up with. Well, but As I think, yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say so. So, and for, uh, diehard listeners to the podcast, if there is such a thing, this is our our second (laughs) bite on that particular text. And the first time, I'm pretty sure we kind of talked about it in the context of Chidi and, and Henry, I believe is the name of his colleague with the with the boots, oh, and it, uh-huh. which but where there's a relationship, but it's not it, that as I recall, that relationship doesn't really factor that much into the lying like Chidi. I think losing this guy's respect is not really a main thing that's on Chidi's mind. But here you've put this back in the context of of their relationship. And there are all these things. I mean, you know, Janet's feelings for Jason, if we can say Mm -hmm. feelings, are a real thing. And then we have Michael, who who is reminded that like he's the one who injected lying into this whole thing as like the mm. uh-huh. the, the original lie came from him. Yeah. And and then and you know when he didn't think anything of it, he really did think of of Janet as an object, as a just a tool <laughs> that he could use. And it didn't affect him to tell her something false. But later on he feels really responsible for this situation, mm-hmm. I guess, and the and, and doesn't want her to feel responsible for being in an environment where lying has been normalized. Is that too serious to say? Yeah. Mm. That comparison made me think of like re- returning back to Chidi and how you're using this text with the with the Henry and the boots of how does uh 
Chidi as someone who studies Kantian ethics end up in the bad place of, well, his ethical dilemma actually didn't have anything to do with Henry. It wasn't relational at all. It was entirely about him trying to live mm. up to this maxim of human beings shouldn't lie. And Michael and Janet here really showing that working out ethical problems is about being in relationship to each other. It's not just about, you know, Chidi walking around in his head, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do to live up to the, you know, categorical imperative. So you mentioned, Myra, this text from Masachet Ketubot in the Talmud, and it seemed to me that the the Beit Shammai position in that argument was try to figure out something that's truthful you can say, but not mm-hmm. too pro- not problematic in the situation, which mm-hmm. I think is what Janet comes up with. Like, if I can just avoid talking too much about, you know, Tahani and Jason, mm-hmm. that will... You know, that'll be sort of a workaround. They'll, I mean, it's not that it's not that they'll think that she's reconciled to it, but it'll be good enough. And <laughs> I was, I, I found that actually sort of surprising. I find that to be not uh, conceptually coherent, but very workable. And they just kind of came to that. It's not what I would have imagined to be the, the, uh, the way out of this situation. There's no one in this scenario, I think, who thinks that an absolute standard of lying is what is what's a problem here. <laughs> they all accept it, except I guess... I mean, when Michael is uh, flashing back to the moment before the neighborhood is first launched with the mm-hmm. changing <laughs> custards last stand. Pudding restaurant, what do you do And he, he sort of lies by omission to her, mm-hmm. you know, and he won't tell her why he needs this to be better than, mm-hmm. than pudding. But actually in that moment is when he first seems to realize he, that he sort of cares about her or that... I guess that's the moment he doesn't feel alone, even though he's just, you know, orchestrated Mm. this manipulation. Yeah, I mean, I think the root of the issue with lying is how indebted do we feel to the other person or how responsible to the other Mm. person do we feel? And it would be interesting to think, like, does does the Beit Shammai position sort of, you know, of like, just, just find the good qualities that you can and praise those. But I think... Listen, of course, we're all in the realm of like every person is made B'Tselem Elohim, right? In the image of God. We all want to hold to the idea that there are redeeming qualities in every person, particularly in your run-of-the-mill everyday person. We're not talking about, you know, like the the Nazis of the world or anything like that. But, but you know, I think we've also also experienced, you know, challenging relationships in our lives where it takes quite a bit of effort to look for the good in certain people or to not carry with us sort of whatever image of that person we have in our minds. And I don't really know where I'm going with that, except to say Shammai's way is maybe praiseworthy, I guess, in the sense of if you can manage that, if you can manage to see past all of the baggage that you have in front of you for why it's challenging for you to see someone's good qualities, that's wonderful. And I think Hillel sort of on the other side is, you know, he's offering the get out of jail free card version of in some circumstances, like what you're responsible for is just to be a good, decent person. And it's sort of like up to you to navigate when does this relationship call for more honesty or not. And that's an interesting thing for, for Janet to sort of reconcile in this episode as well, because she lies by saying, I love your outfit. And then at the end of the episode, she comes back and does like straight talk with Michael. And she's like, take that outfit out of rotation. It makes you look bottom heavy, <laughs> right? Of like, oh, this is a relationship where, where I can be 
truthful about Mm. this particular issue. It's about the relationship. It's about the particular issue, that issue within this particular relationship. You know, like there's, there is actually quite a lot of talk between Janet and Michael about his outfit choices throughout the series. And so, you know, I don't know that it's a really about, will she be lying to Jason and Tahani when she's interacting with them? Or will she just be more aware of what she says? And is that, is that actually better than sort of blindly saying, I'm really happy for you? We talked about lying as a human quality. And as Janet becomes more human, she knows how to lie. But that comparison of at the end, she tells the truth to Michael because of their their relationship, that mm-hmm. maybe it's not lying. Her ability to lie isn't what makes her more human, but her ability to discern when to lie and how to lie and when to tell the truth and how to tell the truth is really what's making her more human throughout the episode that culminates in her knowing how to tell the truth to a good friend. Well, and that's yeah. that's actually the end of the sugiya in Ketubo. It says, Mikan from this debate, the sages said, that, that a person should be constantly like thinking and consulting and their mind should be swirling and mixed up with, with all of creation, with, with their mm-hmm. feelings. Be in tune with that. And that being in tune with that is what actually helps you navigate. Is this a honest truth moment or is this a every bride every bride is beautiful moment you know good now rabbit translation it's well not a, it's not a not a, i didn't know where to go with that word. all the be- oh, no it's important all the best hebrew words uh, can't be translated in a, a word no that's really interesting because i was thinking that michael at no point apologizes to janet for the previous lies but he's earnest about living with them and mm. essentially like he realizes that she's the one who points out that he's not alone. And as he says, it's their, their friends. And what am I trying to say? It's Michael doesn't apologize to Janet for the, the lie. He goes, he goes really right past that to where are we now? And I can no longer see you the way that I initially thought that this relationship, he didn't think of it as a relationship. Mm-hmm. We probably have to talk at some point, maybe in a different episode about Boober and, I it and I thou. There's kind of this impossibility. Oh, of, oh yeah. Like he, that was good with he, Janet. yeah, he was thinking about that. And Janet is interesting that she, in the moment, appreciates that moment a lot. And they sit mm-hmm. there, you know, look at us do whatever is in this world that I created. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, uh, okay, so now you still have to kill me. Even fully knowing that this line was coming, I actually, I had tears in my eyes listening to Michael deliver his his line there. I can't remember if I've cried about The Good Place yet before, but I don't know if that's more about me or there was something about that moment. So in this conversation, Michael and then Eleanor are really the people who are featured in the episode as getting friendship, you know, what it Mm -hmm. means to be there for someone. Janet likes this idea and sort of begins to, I guess is gonna begin to adapt over a longer period of time. And I think from Michael to Janet is a very genuine moment, as I say, brought me to tears. And But I guess Janet, in her childlike way, doesn't quite like, likes, I guess, having a friend is nice. And as we're going to see, you know, Derek, that's nice too. But <laughs> she, she clearly doesn't get it. And, I, and it is a sort of intriguing to me. Do you want to say anything about the friendship text? Yeah, the reason we we latched onto this episode when you said, here, what season two episode do you want? We picked this one is we were also rather touched at the the reason is friend line. And I think it it, it really, it's it's a relationship that keeps coming back in the next couple episodes of Janet and Michael like, anchoring the show. And so I, did, I, I thought of this text just because it's my favorite 
Jewish text about friendship. I didn't, this kind of happened last time we all talked. If I brought a text that I was like, oh, this is one of my favorites about this topic. And then you two were very good at connecting it to the episode. So I'm kind of <laughs> hoping that pays off again. But um, it's from uh, Avot de Rabbi Natan, which is a commentary on Pirkei Avot. And we we quote often uh, the line that it starts with, with make yourself a rabbi and acquire for yourself a friend and judge each person with the benefit of the doubt is the line from Pirkei Avot. And Avot de Rabbi Natan first asks, it starts asking questions about how this is supposed to work. So acquire for yourself a friend. How? This teaches that one acquires a person as a friend for themselves when they eat with them and drink with them and study with them. When you learn Torah, when they learn Torah and Mishnah, when they learn Mishnah and then sleep when they sleep. And when one shares in the mystery with them, those of Torah and those of the world. When friends like these learn Torah together, if one of them errs in a matter of halakha or becomes confused in the order of their learning, or if they pronounce the impure as pure and or the pure as impure or the forbidden as permitted or the permitted as forbidden, one friend will bring the other back. And from where do we learn that when one friend brings the other back and studies with them again, there is a good reward for all of their toils? As it is written in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. They have a good reward for all of their toil. I really love this description of friendship of somebody who's in, in the trenches with you, that you're going through the same, you're going through the same kinds of uh, challenges. And then when one of you makes a mistake in that challenge, you've got your friends around you to support you. I use this as the, my, my dedication for my rabbinic thesis to my, my cohort at HUC. This is kind of the way that I thought of our group together during rabbinical school of we're in the, 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 the first paragraph of when you're all doing the same curriculum together, like that makes you friends, but it's, it's deeper than that of when you're doing the same thing together and you're able to support each other and correct each other and Im- improve the group project, the group product together. Well, Anything way- you thought of it's Michael and Janity in this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say very much because the way the text is striking me is that it starts with kind of an activity that you do together just in a, in a physical outer sense. And then it progresses to sharing the mystery. Now you said brings them back. I think brings the yeah. other. Yeah, is uh, that is yeah. that actually the language of like teshuva? Is that probably? I took a little creative license with the translation, but I think it was more in the first paragraph that I did. I'm pretty sure that sounds pretty literal to me. Yeah, you know, it's hard for two people, I think, to be entirely in sync. Not you two, because you're married to each other. But it's uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> they are high-fiving us just for the listeners. Uh, <laughs> oh, I realized that, that physical comedy doesn't really play on a podcast when you do a purposefully missed high-five. Right, that's my fault. No, that's great. I resonated with Michael as the person who wants to see this as a friendship or comes to realize this is a friendship. And I think, you know, that can happen where, where he got that before Janet did. He was capable of understanding that level. And in some sense, I think appreciated that maybe Janet could too. I mean, here she's the one who's been evolving and learning, but, mm-hmm. and maybe he presents as having this sort of static mm-hmm. knowledge, you know, he's the same, he's the one who doesn't change, but he has changed and and come to see this relationship differently than it was before. I definitely think there are some literal aspects of this text also. I mean, I don't, it's not in this season. I think it happens like at least a few times in season three, where Janet quotes back to Michael something that Chidi taught them. And then mm-hmm. Michael quotes something to Eleanor in season three about something that, that they learned together. They they learned different philosophers, you know, philosophers together. And they, they both end up sort of doing this act where, you know, one of them is straying off the path. One of them is is becoming oh, disillusioned nice. with the ability to act ethically at all. And they 
they hearken back to what they've learned together. They say, you know, we've shared this experience together. And this also happens very much in season three. Maybe this is like a, you know, call out, keep listening, keep watching until season three, because uh, yeah. <laughs> season three is great. Their destiny as a group becomes much more sort of bound up in each other as opposed oh, uh-huh. to individually in season three. So this text is maybe like laying the groundwork of that and Michael and Janet sort of holding the foundation of that destiny together. And I would say certainly the things that they're sharing together as a group, not just Michael and Janet, but all of them, I think would qualify as the the mysteries, the mystery. Uh, the th- you know, and h- how how many people um, would really understand, you know, what else they're going through and, the, you know, the versions of themselves that they go through. I think Ben, Ben pointed out at the end of the episode, Janet's, the echo of her relationship with Jason, you know, from her first reboot that sort of gets amplified with every reboot, but she has no memory at all of marrying Jason, right? That's sort of the prototype for the the end of the show uh, version of the afterlife where you're sort of remembering echoes of, of previous versions of yourself where you're trying to grow and become better. Even if you have no direct memory of what happened, you have this echo of an amplification of the feeling of it that's guiding you in some way. And I wonder if because friends, uh, you're, the friends are sort of functioning as the echo in this text, oh, uh-huh. right? Where you've done this learning together, right? Those are the previous versions of yourself that you've been rebooted, you know, and your friends are functioning as the echo that's sort of reminding you of what you learned back right. then coming to play a role in how you should act now. And, present. and it's talking about the, the town I eat. They're literally like repeaters to each other. So mm-hmm. one of the places where I took license was I said, and learn Mishnah when they learn Mishnah. But I think that it's not being used as a noun there. It's being mm-hmm. used as a verb originally of just like the generic to learn is to mm-hmm. repeat. Mm-hmm. Repeating it back to each other. Yeah. Repeating it back to each other. See what I did there? Echo. Yeah. Oh, That's echo. <laughs> Sorry. All right. We're so insane. Yeah. <laughs> There were many things that I found interesting in what in what the two of you just said. And one of the things I was thinking was how to tie back again the the teaching you have here about about friendship with what we've been talking about, about lying. Because what struck me is that you were quoting how one of the functions of a friend in this text is to correct people when they're in error. And this kind of assumption that there that there will be errors or sometimes one person knows the truth better mm-hmm. than the other and has to mm-hmm. it's not it's not a bad thing you're not calling somebody out exactly but there's sort of an expectation that you can be in this thing that you might call friendship while you're acknowledging that you know for a time one person is is kind of in the wrong about something and that doesn't destroy the relationship they're in i think most of us probably have that experience of like in what relationships am i comfortable you know making those kinds of corrections or pointing out some of those flaws and maybe the defining feature of a true a true friendship is willingness and openness to acknowledge your flaws, each other's flaws, and you know respond to those things kindly and constructively. The other thing that made me think of is your comment of we we both take we both take Ellie to the pediatrician together, and we we come back and like relaying what happened to our parents. And Myra said something like, "Yeah, I think we actually re- we remember better together. We're good at remembering together, and the thing that the two of us learning learning something together." The, it's not necessarily that one of us is in error, but we're listening for different things when we're studying the same thing called like how to own and operate a baby. And like, <laughs> I hear, I hear things that jump out to me and you hear things that jump out to you. And together we have a really accurate reconstruction, I think, of mm. what we're doing for the next three mm-hmm. months before there we take her back. Two is better than one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's really helpful because I was just thinking about the fact that Michael and Janet are so different. And in this particular moment where Michael has clearly come on a path of learning what friendship means to him in terms of Janet, and she understands that that's a sweet and important thing, but she really doesn't get it. I mean, she is at a kind of almost childlike level, but that doesn't disturb Michael that she doesn't Mm. understand their friendship quite in the same way. Mm. And in some sense she does, even though she can't say it like she wants to, like she's still willing to be destroyed in this scenario mm-hmm. for everybody's good, including Michael's. And But she does kind of accommodate to that, okay, there could be a reason why it's okay. I don't quite get it, you know, but that I should still be in this universe with you, Michael, and with even with Jason and Tahani. And so I think, and I'm just playing that off the, the very parallel back and forth that you're describing in this rabbinic teaching. And when she says at the end, she goes, you know, the, when he says like the reason is friends and she's kind of taken it back, you know, the, well, 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 look who, you know, <laughs> like that she, she can't see it from the outset of her importance as a, you know, not, not a human, right. But like someone who's becoming more human. And yet when someone points it out to her, of like our relationship is important. She goes, look at that. Our relationship is important. Like, you know, <laughs> It's so- yeah, I mean, I think also an interesting moment in a lot of relationships of like, I think, I think that happens to uh, lots of us where there's sort of like a defining moment in a friendship or or a relationship where you where you sort of have a moment of discovery of like just how important am I to this other person, and the way it sort of lets down vulnerabilities and a willingness to reciprocate that mm-hmm. feeling. And Janet won't get it right away because the the next episode with Derek is just is just totally yeah. bananas, <laughs> and it's gonna take her a while. Like I I associate this as very much a turning point in their friendship, but that it doesn't really come into being. I think till the end of the season when they're sitting, you know, spoilers again next to that tick, ticker tape, really trying right. to uh, trying to like yeah. very much together, caring exactly the same way about. Well, it. she's Michael. There goes a Janet, old friend, and that right, like they like really. But that's, I I was thinking about this as we're watching the episode. This is her coming out of her final reboot. Her reboot prior to like Team Cockroach is essentially her last reboot. Mm -hmm. And so she's, you know, she's right. She doesn't have that same sense of her history with Michael and it's sort of starting all over, but Mm -hmm. she certainly has whatever those, you know, the echoes of it are. And just like, you know, knowing from here how she moves forward from that sort of infant stage and then Mm -hmm. continues to grow and develop from here. And that's what I like about this episode's linking of the the lying question, I lied to you and you've been lying to me about Jason and Tahani, that that they don't see it at the level of like, is this lie, is this particular lie good or bad? So you've been Mm. drawing out the fact that there are these, these echoes of things that we don't necessarily verbalize or we don't get in the moment. And mm-hmm. I think this teaching about the two study partners who can kind of gently over time hear each other, see where there might be errors, or as you say, remember, build toward remembering things together is is really interesting. And I noticed that that Chidi is kind of a foil for this because Chidi, you know, repeatedly will say things like, I, I'm just not a person who can lie. I can't see I can't see lying. All I can <laughs> see is truth telling and lying in the context of this particular word that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Really from the beginning when he when he launches in the show with, you know, oh my God, now I'm lying like he's consumed with I'm lying about Eleanor who Eleanor really is back at the mm-hmm. very beginning of the series. And Michael at least seems to have this longer view that truth might be bigger than this particular mm. 
not true statement that we're exchanging or that we did exchange even in the origin that the fact that he started with a lie doesn't mean they can't grow past it or through it. I'm not condoning lying. I'm not condoning lying to people you're friends with or married to or anything like that. (laughs) It does seem that lying is foundational to cheese ethics because I'm contrasting his concerns about lying with the repeated joke about he's like i know how i ended up in the bad place almond milk because yes. i drank that almond milk right <laughs> so it's not that cheaty reckon it's not that cheaty thinks he's incapable of sin and vice he he believes he does have vice called almond milk but something about <laughs> lying he, he'll he'll drink almond milk all the, the live long day but he can't lie and mm-hmm. so i think that that's interesting of as a con- your your point of him being a counterweight to janet of something about lying being foundational for both of those figures. In the episode that we haven't seen yet in the sequence of the series, but we recorded and podcasted out about the humans dressing up in their costumes to go through Bad Place headquarters on their way to the mm-hmm. judge. Chidi is the one who won't, he won't even put on a costume like that, that level. Right. Won't. And then there is this moment though, where in order to buy time, he, he does tentatively figure out that, okay, I could maybe not say exactly everything that's true in my head right now, he starts to have that realization. And I think that getting to a definition of lying that is in the context of, that isn't lying, that doesn't see, that doesn't see a black-white switch there, but, but it only works in the context of a, of a real relationship and a, and a friendship. Mm-hmm. And then you can deal with not just, you know, you, you broke a rule, but what does this mean for us and, and where we're going together? Well, and the the way he comes to that realization in that episode is because Eleanor has a sit down chat and says, this is a concept that I learned from you. I definitely don't remember off the top of my head, which philosophical concept it was, but, but, you know, this, this exact thing of, of sitting with your friend and reminding them of something they already know and have forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I like certainly as a rabbi and person doing this whole thing about philosophy, I like the idea that they're is a dimension of at least some kind of friendships that are that are about that, that are about ethical learning or, or teaching mm. each other philosophy in a way that helps you each. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Myra and Ben, this is so great to talk to you guys again. Thank you for doing this. Likewise, it's always a good time. <laughs> and that's another episode of Tov. Tov means good in Hebrew. And if you think the time you've spent listening was good, then share this with others and give us a good rating on whatever app you're using. Show notes and other resources are on the web at tovgoodplace.com. I'm John Spiracevet at RabbiJS3 and RabbiJohn.net. And thanks again to Myra Meskin and Ben Gurin, parents of little real-life Eleanor, for co-hosting. Thank you for listening, and to paraphrase Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean and hosts the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum. 